All right. Well, pressure is on now that I know that this is one of PJ's favorite Old Testament passages. <laughs> Tough call to answer, but no. Uh, good evening, everyone. Tanner Gish, married to Orianne Gish. I know you know us, but it's a pleasure to be here and to uh, meditate upon God's word together. All right. I know that John Lee has, but who here has seen... I've also learned that movies are a great introduction topic here at BBC, so who has seen Top Gun Maverick so far? All right, I figured there'd be a pretty good showing. It's a lot of fun, I enjoyed it as well, but uh, what is this blockbuster primarily about? Action and thrills? Cool jets and military recruitment, perhaps? Jock egos and rivalries? Well, it's about many of those things, but it's primarily about partnerships and companions. The terminology that we see in the context of the Air Force is wingmen, but then also in the personal side, best friends. Survival of the individual, as well as the entire squadron, depends on trust in your team and in their loyalty and capability to deliver and to protect you from the enemy. Whether it's the 1986 or the 2022 version, the message is the same. Survival and success depends upon one another. This is true not because Hollywood tells us that that's the case. We find ourselves often in situations where we don't know if we're going to make it. Perhaps it's through a particular trial or endeavor that we're facing at work or in a relationship. Perhaps we're not even sure if our bodies will make it through a health crisis or our souls will make it through a time of long suffering. Today, though, we will look at such a situation, perhaps going back similar to Top Gun, where there's lines of battle that are drawn, and the question about whether success or whether survival is going to be achieved is, at the very beginning, still a question mark. But we'll look today and see what we can learn from God's word to learn about God's plan for enduring through opposition, through cooperation, and helping one another. So if you can turn in your Bibles, if you have our wonderful black pew Bibles, to page 269. We will be in 2 Samuel chapter 10. And of course, we'll be getting a little bit of context to the entire chapter, but specifically in verses 11 and 12. And our main idea today is this. Draw strength to obey Christ by trusting in gospel promises and vigilantly help others to do the same. Draw strength to obey Christ by trusting his gospel promises and vigilantly help others by your example to do the same. 2 Samuel chapter 10, starting in verse 11. If the Arameans are too strong for me, Joab said, then you will be my help, speaking to his brother, Abishai. However, if the Ammonites are too strong for you, I'll come to your help, to help you. Be strong. Let's prove ourselves strong for our people and for the cities of our God. May the Lord's will be done. Let's pray as we dive into God's word. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, which we so desperately need. Lord, we pray that even this evening, as we reflect upon the many good graces 
that you've given us, the blessings to be part of gospel cooperation, both within this body, within our denomination, within this region, Lord, to reflect upon the goodness of fathers that you've given us, Lord, to be born here today, the fact that we know, if we know you and what you've done through your son, Jesus, that we know you as our father this Father's Day, Lord. And Lord, thank you also for, for this text, Lord. May you encourage us and may you give us eyes to see what you have for us to behold in your law. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So these are two great verses. I agree with PJ. But let's spend a little bit of time getting some broader context to what's happening here in this battle with the Ammonites and really in the entire book of First and Second Samuel as well. So if you're like Peter and you spend time teaching six through nine-year-olds and you're looking through storybook Bibles, you know that the books of Samuel are a great source for getting many action item stories that will fill the Old Testament section of a child's children's storybook. However, there's much more going on here than just exciting stories or perhaps examples that say, hey, just be more good like this guy and God will help you or don't be like this bad guy and it will not go well for you. We need to read these books in the context of both bookends of scripture from Genesis to Revelation and to understand that what we see in each character and in each episode is God slowly unfolding his covenantal plan for his people and really for the renewal of the entire world. Each individual and event is part of a great work that God has been doing since creation and has been progressively unfolding that through the pages of time. Each episode is not a fable. It's either a faithful following servant showing someone is on board with God's work or a rebellious rejecter of what God is achieving. So, 2 Samuel, we're here in chapter 10. What's happened in the first nine? We see that God is defending and establishing this promised land that he's already delivered his people through, through Joshua, but he's protecting it from invaders and he's expanding and establishing it. In fact, he's establishing it even to the case of creating a kingdom and placing in it a king. The first king, as we know, was King Saul. He was given a chance to choose life for himself by choosing God's way and have his nation to go along with that. Yet instead, we see someone who feared man more than he feared God. We see a resulting horrid story of faithlessness, of raging anger, cowardice, weakness, betrayal, and ultimately death for him and for his family. But now, we have David, chosen by God, not by the people, and a man as we know after God's own heart. David recognizes God's grace to Israel and is chosen to trust and to obey him. The result is that God establishes and protects the promised land and kingdom through this chosen king, David, and who in turn trusts and chooses God. So specifically, David has, after Saul's passing, through this brief kind of civil war skirmish with Saul's son, Ishbosheth, um, emerged as king. And David has been gradually growing and expanding this kingdom through God's power and help. One verse that Jonathan Lehman shared with us yesterday characterizes this kind of climaxing aspect of David's kingdom. It says that David administered justice and equity 
very different than what was taking place through Saul. We also see that he's obedient to God when it comes to foreign relations. He is both praying and obeying what God says, and he is bringing down the sword against God's adulterous and idolatrous enemies, and yet he's also extending in and receiving tribute to those that will bow down to the king of Israel. We see that God is also establishing his presence and a place of worship amongst his people. In fact, after a very tumultuous journey, the Ark of the Covenant went through in 1 Samuel. It's now finally in the city of Jerusalem, which David has recently conquered. And then there's been military victory over many people groups, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, um, the Arameans, and even the people that we're fighting here in chapter 10, the Ammonites. And then lastly, these last few chapters, 2 Samuel 7 is a pivotal chapter that many of you are familiar with. We talked about how God's story is one of his unfolding covenantal plan. What are his good promises to restore and give life to a broken world and broken people, and to be building his people and creating a new cosmos? In 2 Samuel 7, he says to David, I will make an eternal kingdom. What I'm building here is going to last forever through you and through your line. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, it's, the Lord tells him this, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. So immediate context, this war, kind of a second war with the Ammonites. First we see a very merciful picture of God. In the chapter before, we see David extending kindness to Saul's remaining crippled son, Mephibosheth. And I bring this up because there's a parallel between this and how chapters 10 starts. In chapter 9, verse 1, David says, Is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul I can show kindness? This same word we might know from the Psalms or from the Pentateuch as God's loving, as loving kindness, an attribute often referred to God. David is looking to be able to show covenant-loving kindness, and he finds Saul's remaining son, Mephibosheth, and Meshibabeth graciously and thankfully responds to this invitation. He's now part of David's table and gets to re-enjoy the blessings of being part of the royal family that his father had left. But now we come to chapter 10, and David is again looking to show covenantal kindness but this time to a different person. Sometime later, the king of the Ammonites died and his son Hanun became king in his place. Then David said, I'll show kindness, covenant loving kindness to Hanun, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. Brief pause here. David, and we'll see more of this later, is not a perfect man. But many times looking through his life, we get to see a shadow and a picture of the way that our perfect king, Jesus, treats us. Here David is extending kindness both to those within his people and even to a Gentile. Now, who is Nahash? Well, from 1 Samuel, he actually sounds like a pretty bad guy. In fact, Saul actually had to rout him out after Nahash came looking to terrorize a particular uh, city within Israel. But knowing that David or Saul had decided to make David his enemy, 
Perhaps this friendship and this reason for David wanting to extend this kindness comes from the fact that while David is running from Saul, perhaps Nahash was like many of these um, pagan kings that actually provided shelter for David during that time. This isn't recorded in scripture, but regardless, we see Dave wanting to extend this kindness. But if we read a little further, and we shall summarize, Hanun's response is very different than the gratitude and thanksgiving of Mephibosheth. Instead, he despises David's kindness, and he shames the messengers that God sends. He did that by cutting off the men's beards and even trimming off their clothes, exposing everything beneath the belt. Ashamed and humiliated, these men come back. And here again, we see the heart of David, which is not dissimilar from the heart of our Savior, who actually makes a trip to Jericho to these embarrassed men who are faithful messengers to him and says, stay here until your beards are grown. This would be important a little bit later on. But now to the battle. So knowing that this great offense has taken place, Hanun knows there's gonna be some retribution. And retribution for shaming God's people and God's kindness, there should be. But he takes this move of looking to amass this military trans-Euphrates coalition of different city-states. The idea is, hey, we got beat by David before, my dad got beat by Saul, we're gonna need some help in order to make this happen. And David hears about this, and so he decides to deploy his own special forces. Many of us know them as David's mighty men. I believe they're referenced a little bit differently here in the CSB. But regardless, they are battle-ready individuals, and they head on out, likely to Rabbah, the capital city of the Ammonites, behind which King Hanun is here trying to plan. Just to give a little bit of an idea in terms of the size of soldiers that are showing up here, the, I'm still used to saying Staples Center, the crypto.com arena by comparison holds 20,000 people. Just by some of these non-Ammonites that Hanun is gathering around, there are about 33,000 strong, plus whoever Hanun has himself as his, his own people. Quickly, David's commander, Joab, and Joab's brother, Abishai, find themselves surrounded by this military pincer move. They have the city and the Ammonites on one side, and behind them, they see all these different Arameans coming, trained mercenaries from the rear. As Joab rallies his troops for battle, we were reminded about our first main point for today, which is this. We are to draw strength to obey Christ by trusting his gospel promises. I'll go ahead and read the text a little bit before what we read, starting in verse 9. When Joab saw that there was a battle line in front of him, oh, sorry, I'll actually jump up to where we read before in verse 12. Joab, speaking to his other fellow soldiers, says this, Be strong. Let's prove ourselves strong for our people and for the cities of our God. May the Lord's will be done. Job could have had a different response than he did here. Joab could have fled. Certainly there are many examples of scripture of fleeing taking place. But we see in the words of this speech a crucial point 
that we cannot miss in this conflict. And that is this, Job's, uh, Joab's anchor and support and confidence for the outcome of this battle is not in his own military accolades, by this point, which he's got accumulated quite a good number. It's not in his own skills or his soldiers. He's trusting in what the Lord's will would be. Now, this might read as a little bit of a throwaway, perhaps this fatalistic kind of samurai line that, you know, those of you who watch anime might find out, like, whatever the will be done, I will fight to my fate. But that is, that is not what's going on here. A more literal translation would be, let the Lord do what is good in his eyes. Joab, although kind of a colorful character in the Old Testament, is not a fatalist. Joab is fixing his confidence on the unretractable promises and the unchanging character of an all-powerful God. This is a good move, given Joab's character. It's commendable, given his track record. Joab, when you read his story, it's a bit of a mixed bag. He has resolute devotion to his king, David, and yet, at the same time, has outbursts of bloodthirsty vengeance and many other behaviors that show he's driven by his flesh more than he has obedience to God's commands. And in fact, even his loyalty crosses some lines where he's very much willing to do what his commander on earth may say, even if that is a heinous violation of what God would delight in. Yet in this confession, he gets it right. The source of his rally cry to his, cry to his own people and this call for strength is again, not in his circumstances, but dependence upon God's good promises, God's good plans. What is God's will? What is good in God's eyes? Joab is trusting in the good news. Now, Joab and David, at their point in history, have only received the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic, and just recently, this covenant with David. But God is prospering them as they are faithfully following God as he unveils his plan of redemption for his people. The full good news, which we know, looking back through history, we can see through Paul. Paul makes this clear in Acts chapter 13 when he says this. In summarizing Israel's history and God's work through it to his audience, he says, God raised up David as their king and testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart who will carry out all my will. From this man's descendants, as he promised, God brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. What Joab and David knew and trusted in part, we beautifully see in the whole. All that God was building through David and through Solomon was a shadow and a foretaste of a new covenant, a new life, and a new creation reality. See, David, this 100% um, or only man king, prefigures the coming of a perfect man king in Jesus. This promised land of which battles are raging around the perimeter is a foretaste of an eternal rest and a new earth. 
This kingdom in Palestine, there will be a kingdom of God that reigns over all physical and the entire spiritual universe. This temple, this sacrificial system of animals, Jesus will dwell with us by the Spirit, and it's his atoning sacrifice that will provide the blood that covers our sins and gives us life by faith in him. Joab draws strength to obey God in this conflict by trusting in God's good promises. And Jesus tells us much to do the same. When Jesus gives the parable about the mustard seed, he's also teaching that the source of our strength does not come from the quantity or the grit of our faith. It's coming in the object of our faith. So friends, the evening service is a beautiful time because we get to specifically look around and see what the answer is to this question. Who are you gospelizing? Who are you? Who am I reading scripture with? And we cannot gospelize others or much less gospelize ourselves unless we know the content of God's good promises. May we be like Joab, may we be constantly growing and being able to appreciate, to savor, and to clearly share what God's good promises are. Can we point people to Jesus, looking both at the Old Testament and at the New, and to help them with veils coming out of their eyes to know and to follow him? And can we then strengthen each other by gospelizing one another with the same unchanging truth that the source of our strength is not in our skills, it's not in our circumstances, it is in God's promises. God is faithful to do his will. So now we get towards our second point today. So first we saw that we are to draw strength for obedience to Christ by trusting in God's good gospel promises. And secondly, we see that we are to help others with vigilance and have them follow our own example of strength. Helping others with vigilance. Let's look, let's look back again at verse 11. If the Arameans are too strong for me, Joab said, then you will be my help. However, if the Ammonites are too strong for you, I will come to help you. This seems like a pretty simple strategy. Hey, if I'm losing some ground over here, come on over and help me. I remember even as a little kid reading the story and thinking, is this all there is to military genius? It doesn't seem all that complicated. However, if you think about it, there's a significant amount of strategy and communication that still needs to go on for this to take place. I mean, even today, I understand from friends who are veterans that communication isn't always what makes the sexy headlines when you're looking at a war movies or even historical documentaries, but communication is one of the most important elements in any battle and in any conflict. If you can imagine, there had to be lines of communication set up between Joab and between his brother. You can imagine them fighting, Joab blocking arrows, blocking some swords, Hey, Abishai, how's it going over there? 
it's, it's going okay, but you know, Tet Force and uh, Bet Force over here need a little bit of extra help. Um, you could not effectively come to each other's aids unless they have the knowledge of the conditions of their brother and their fellow soldiers' battlefields. And yet just as communication needed to exist for help to exist between these two units, so it is important for us to have knowledge of what is happening in each other's own souls. This ties in so well to what we looked at through Colossians chapter four today. Although perhaps looking at cooperation and partnership with those that are spread out throughout the world where the gospel is being shared, do we take the time to be informed, our first point, and to exhort one another with that knowledge here within BBC? You know, one application I was just reflecting on this morning was I have uh, some friends, close friends, that I knew from my time at Biola that we see about every other month, and they live down in Tustin. And we know a lot about each other's lives, but am I taking that information and am I applying it always into soul-level conversations and into ministry-building conversations? You know, I smile thinking the next time we're over there enjoying some of Caleb's smoked salmon to be able to say, so how is your ministry to the Tustinians going down here? You know, what new, uh, what new converges or what new gospel conversations are taking place? Well, great, I, I'm glad you asked. I'd love to tell you what's happening with the Whittierites. And now those uh, bellflower Orions, well, we've got some fantastic stories about what our church is doing there. We need to be so eager to get this information, not just so we can log it away, but so that we can actually be actively looking to help one another, just as Joab and Abishai were looking to do with one another. Real ministry and real encouragement and real help requires accurate knowledge of one another's soul. However, this Ammonite battle is not just here in chapter 10. It actually does not end until the end of chapter 12. And probably the most famous chapter in 2 Samuel lies right in between. Because we see a picture of what happens when we no longer trust and live out active obedience to God's gospel promises. We see the consequences also of when we withdraw and do not share with our brothers and sisters what is the state of our soul and let sin take us into hiding. Second Samuel chapter 11 begins like this. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab and his officers and all Israel. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Should probably finish a bit of a cliffhanger here. Joab and Abishai do survive that initial battle on both sides that they were fighting. They return to, is, to King David. They actually go and make some further progress in the battle, but then come back. And this talks about the next wave of war. Yet David, unlike before, when he was so willing to not only go to battle, but to even go visit his own messengers in Jericho, to give them words of comfort to restore their honor, David this time stays behind. He's no longer going out trusting that as God's appointed king and warrior, he needs to be out in the battle line. He stays back, first step of disobedience. And secondly, we know what happens from here. 
alone, David opens up the shutters from his wonderful palace, and behold, he sees a beautiful city and an even more beautiful Bathsheba. What happens from here? Hero, people who have been heroes up until this point, both David, even Joab, all of a sudden look very different when sin and hiding comes into the picture. You know the story. David commits adultery with Bathsheba, who happens to be one of his mighty men, Uriah the Hittite's wife. Then, in order to cover this, he brings Uriah back, tries to cover this impending pregnancy with Bathsheba, and ultimately, in frustration, orders Uriah the Hittite's ultimate death on the battlefield. And Joab, being faithful to his earthly commander, allows this all to happen. But friends, even in this dark low point from which the climax of David's reign and God's support as a result of his faithfulness after God's own heart starts to crumble, we see that restoration in God's life takes place by the help of another. God in his grace has designed that we support one another as a part of his body and the people of God. We need one another. And the Lord does this by sending Nathan the prophet to convict David about his sin. How long would David have kept this secret in hiding had not this brother come with a special word and to point the finger and say, you are that man, the heinous, murderous, stealing man of the parable that Nathan told him. So friends, is your telecom open to the people of God. We're blessed here at BBC to have accountability groups, to have city groups, and in each of these places, there are great opportunities for us to not just share information about what transpired in the week, which can be easy to do, but to answer the question, what is the health of our soul? What threat, what conflict is there? What spiritual warfare are we engaged in or are we losing in? Friends, the greater degree to which we transparently share that information, the more the Lord will use the spirit in his people to help us in each of these circumstances. In this past week, I had a chance to have a couple conversations with a faithful brother here. And I was encouraged last week by him even asking me, Tanner, is everything okay? Reading your body language, you seem like you've got some like inner anxiety. What, What's behind that? Now, processing through it, uh, I don't believe there was anything that I was concealing or hiding, but he did observe things that I've been bearing for a long time and even in the last few days had come up and was really wrestling with the Lord to work through. Friends, do we have an insightful eye where we are vigilantly looking out for one another, for one another's protection and to lend help and to bring each other back to the source of our strength, which is not how hard we're fighting, but what are the promises of God that we're depending on? His promises, which don't change, are our source and strength. We're all very familiar of the many one another commandments in the New Testament scriptures. In fact, 100 of them in 94 verses. As we get close to concluding, let me read just a couple of these for us to meditate on. Friends, be at peace with one another. 
Be of the same mind with one another. Be devoted to one another in love. Serve one another. Speak truth to another. Comfort one another concerning the resurrection. Encourage and build up one another. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Pray for one another. Be hospitable to one another. Friends, this particular word in the New Testament, to be alert, to be vigilant, we looked at it earlier in our study in Colossians, has been one that since 2012 has powerfully stood out to me. This idea of just, are we really faithful and dutiful soldiers guarding the watch through the wee hours of the night? Is that night? Is that the kind of intentional seeking that we have to look out for threats both to ourselves, but to those whom we love in God's family? Paul, writing to the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, says this, Hey guys, be alert. Men will rise up even from your own number. This means at least the church in Ephesus, if not even these elders perhaps, who will distort the truth and lure disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert. This is the word for watchfulness and vigilance. Remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. Friends, today, may we remember that our source of strength comes in clinging to gospel promises. And may we also never forget that we are to vigilantly look to help one another in attaching to the source of strength. As we close, I want to read this third line from the psalm that, song that we concluded with this morning. O church, arise. Come, see the cross where love and mercy meet as the Son of God is stricken. Then see his foes like crushed beneath his feet, for the conqueror has risen. And as the stone is rolled away and Christ emerges from the grave, this victory march continues till the day every eye and heart shall see him. Friends, we can have the same confidence in battle that Joab and Abishai had because this is the gospel truth that we have attached ourselves to in faith. May we be encouraged to help one another and to lead those who don't know him yet to know Jesus as the same King and same Savior. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the chance to discuss it, to encourage one another and to look through it, not just as history, but as divine promises that you did not have to make to us, but Jesus, you did. You will not break your word. You are faithful to your covenant. So Lord, we pray that you strengthen us and you equip us to deeper know your promises that they may abide with us and empower us to gospel faithfulness in gospelizing our families, our workplaces, and our communities this week. Jesus, we pray this all in your name. Amen.